This is uh, this winter, um, take us a little bit after into the spring, um, and we've been doing it, uh, we're doing it over three years. So we did, the, we did the first section of Genesis last year, and those are on the website, I think they're still on the website, if you want to go back and listen. We're doing the second section of Genesis, which is essentially just covering the life of Abraham, and then we'll do the third sec- section of Genesis uh, next year. So... So this morning we are in Genesis chapter, 20, uh, chapter 17, and we will look at, at the entirety of this, and I will read, read the entirety of it right now. This is God's Word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your holy, uh, perfect word that is um, for us this morning. So God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand, and give us hearts to receive what you have to teach us from your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever felt in your life uh, like you've really blown it? I mean like royally blown it. Like you knew and people around you knew about it. Um, There was no escape from it because of that. You had nowhere to go. You you were trapped. And you have, at least in in your mind, you've committed the greatest offense that anyone in all of creation has ever committed. And it is unforgivable. You've blown it completely. Have you ever felt like you've blown it with God? That you've sinned so greatly that He would never forgive you, that He would would never uh, let you come back into His embrace. Maybe it's it's a pattern in your life that you keep falling back into. Maybe it's a sin that 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 it seems to you at least that you can't escape. And so you keep failing and you keep stumbling. If so, if that's where you are, and I would imagine that most of us have been there or are there, then you're in really good company when you approach the Bible. So just in case you're, you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Bible is not a story about perfect people doing perfect things. It's a story about a bunch of scoundrels. It's a story about imperfect people. It's a story about a, a perfect God coming down to these imperfect people. People who have blown it, seriously blown it. You've got examples like Isaac, who we just read about, who's not even born yet. You have examples like King David and the Israelites, just as a people, collectively, corporately blew it before God. You have the disciples who walked with Jesus himself, who walked with God in the flesh, and they blew it. And you think about Peter, just to single him out because he does it himself in the Bible. Just think about Peter and how many times he blew it with Jesus. Well, today, Abram, or Abraham, as we'll we'll know him here soon, is our shining example of someone who has blown it. Because last Sunday, we left off in chapter 16 with Abraham doing just that, blowing it before God. And it's not the first time he's done it. And even after his great statement of belief in chapter 15, where uh, the the author says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This great statement that frames the entirety of the Bible, really, of justification by faith. In chapter 16, we see him enter back into this familiar old pattern of trusting in a plan B, or essentially trusting in himself to save himself. So we would say, surely God is done with him. Surely God is ready to move on to someone more reliable. There has to be someone else around. 
someone less prone to fall back into what's easiest and what's most comfortable, someone who will listen. So it would, it would be easy to assume that Abram has blown it once and for all in chapter 16. This was it. This, this was the end of the line. But in chapter 17, we find the exact opposite happening in Abram's life. In chapter 17, God actually doubles down on his commitment to, Abr- to not only Abram, but to his offspring. He starts uh, actually naming who his offspring will be by saying Isaac. He doubles down on his, his commitment to make Abram the father of many nations. Even just even adding extra that, that, that kings will come from you. So if it, if it wasn't already more ridiculous that Abram uh, was going to have a child at almost 100 years old, God says, you're not only going to have people, but you're going to have kings come from you. Why does God do this? Why, why does it he just, he just brush Abram aside, find someone else who is, who is you know, not perfect, but someone who's, who's more perfect than Abram? Well, remember chapter 15. God is the one who has sealed the covenant with Abram. You remember, it was a one-sided covenant at that point in time. And God seals this covenant that he has with Abram and with the future generations against his own life. That God says, if this covenant is not fulfilled, then let me be the one who dies. That's confidence. And as we'll see in the text, repeated over and over again, this covenant that God is putting into place or has put into place is an everlasting covenant. That means there is no contingency plan. There is no plan B. That what God has promised, this is exactly what will happen. This is the plan, and it's the best plan. So just like he didn't push Adam and Eve aside after they fell, if you remember that back in Genesis chapter 3, or you could say he didn't smite them, which is just start all over, make a new creation. God doesn't push Abram aside either. Rather, God further intensifies his covenant with him because, because the plan isn't about Abram and how good he is or the good deeds that he's doing. It's about the future hope of the promise fulfilled. The future reality of where God's story of the world is going. Because here we find not only the story of Abram, but we find our story as well. That we are actually written into this story as well. It's a story that, that puts us in a certain posture that, that changes everything about us. Even our own name, as we'll see. So we'll look at our text this morning in three ways. I don't think these are in your, your worship guide, so you can write them down. But we'll look at it in three ways. One is reminded in love. Two is engraved in flesh. And then three is obeyed in faith. So the covenant is reminded in love, engraved in flesh, and obeyed in faith. 
to first, reminded in love. Look at verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So in these first two verses, uh, you can already see that, that God is, is establishing himself again in Abram's life. That, that, that God is the one who is taking the initiative here. So it's been uh, between chapter, the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, there has been 13 years that have passed. 13 years that we could say that God has not spoken to Abram. So Abram's just living his life. He's, he's doing his job. He's raising this, this child, Ishmael. And for all, for all he knows, this is the child that, that God is going to use. And then after 13 years, the first thing that God says to Abram, the way in which God breaks the silent to Abram is to say, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So God establishes himself here to make us ready for the entire chapter as as he is the main voice throughout. You don't hear Abram talk a whole lot here. And when he does, he says things that are kind of ridiculous. God is the main one speaking here in the text. He is the one that declares to Abram and Sarah who he is and who they are in his plan, and what his plan is. And he begins this by declaring his name. Now there's a lot happening in this passage around, uh, around names. We, we heard it last week even in chapter 16 as well. But, but it's God who declares to Abram who he is by reminding him his name. I am God Almighty. And you see this throughout the scriptures. You'll see it in Exodus as well when God says, uh, tells Moses to go to the Israelite people. Who, who, do I, who do I tell them sent me? And God gives them his name. I am sent you. That's what he's doing here. And also by this, he, he's reminding Abram uh, whose plan he's walking in. This is not Abram's plan as much as he wants it to be. This is not uh, Sarai's plan even though Abram will look to her to give him a plan. This is the plan of God Almighty. So just a reminder to you that whatever you might be walking through currently, whatever you may have walked in here with, um, or whatever you may hear this week, however hard it may be, that you are in the hand of God Almighty. You are in His hand. And if you, are, if you are a Christian, this is who your God is. He is not some puppet. He's not one God amongst many. He is God over all other gods. He is almighty. So whatever your plan looks like, whether you understand it or not, know for certain that you are in the hand of God almighty. You are in his plan. Some of you might need to hear that kind of reminder today, as Abram did. Abram needed to know that he was in the plan of God Almighty. 
is the God of the Bible is not some run-of-the-mill God, but the Almighty, which puts him in a category of his own. There's no other God in the world that you can call Almighty. Like I said, in the Bible, names were significant. Our names aren't really that significant anymore. My name, Kevin, means, um, which you probably already guessed by looking at me, means kind and handsome. So, um, but I'm, I'm guaranteed, my parents are here, and I know they didn't choose that name because of, of that, um, but because names don't really carry that much meaning for us anymore. Look up your name later and see if, if you exemplify any of those uh, behaviors or attributes of your name. Probably not. But in the Bible, uh, names were important. They meant something. They told a story. Not only to the person who was named that name, but to everyone else who would call on that name. They knew what the name meant. So last week in Genesis 16 with Ishmael's name. And then, and then this week we see it in chapter 17, four different times of names. God renames Abram and Sarai. God gives them their son's name, Isaac. And then here, God reminds Abram of his own name. In Hebrew, it's El Shaddai, the Almighty One. So this is important because of what God is telling Abram here. He's not giving him anything new. He is reminding him of the same promise and the same covenant that he told him about back in Genesis chapter 12. Years and years and years ago, God told him this, and this is what God is telling him now. So essentially what God is saying is that the only way a promise like this that I'm giving to you could come true is if it's enacted by an almighty being. This can only be a divine work, a work of God. So simply what is about to happen, God is saying, is not humanly possible. He's acknowledging that. He's letting Abraham know that. Abraham already knows. If you notice in the text, it's told us a couple of times Abraham's age. That That is on purpose by the author. He wants you to know that Abraham is old. And Sarah is old. They cannot have kids. It is humanly impossible for that to happen. And then, it's the almighty God of the Bible who then reminds Abraham of who he is, who commands Abram to walk before him. What does it mean to walk before God? Because I know in my own kind of imagination, if my, my first thought went to kind of like someone who's, like a, who's uh, driving horses that are before, before him, and he's, he's using the whip, and he's cracking the whip on his horses, and the horse is just driving before him. That is not the picture that the, the, the biblical author is trying to give us here. God does not stand behind us and just kind of crack over us the whip and just tell us to do certain things. That's not what the image is here. To walk before God means to live your life before him. There's a Latin phrase you might know, um, that is quorum deo. Quorum deo. And that, this phrase captures this well because what this phrase means is before the face of God. Quorum deo. Uh, theologian R.C. Sproul, the late theologian R.C. Sproul, said to live quorum deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God 
under the authority of God and to the glory of God. That's what it means to live before God. So now, now the reality is, whether you're a Christian or not, we all live before God. Whether you believe that or not, you live your life before God. Nothing is hidden. There's nowhere you can hide. There's nothing that you can do in the dark that God cannot see. He's the creator and he's the sustainer of life. Even if you don't believe in him, he is keeping you alive right now. His common grace, as we would call it, is bestowed to everyone. If your crops need rain, God's bringing that rain. Christian or not. But the difference is, is whether you live your life knowing that this is your reality or not. Do you believe you're living your life before an almighty God? Do you believe that? And if you do, that should change you. You should be living differently than the world calls you to live. This is what God calls Abram to do here in verse 1. I like the the Christian Standard Translation here. uh, Actually translates this phrase as, live in my presence. Live in my, I think this is a good translation, live in my presence. And and, and as God calls Abram, Abram to live in his presence, notice what God says will happen when he does. Live in my presence, or walk before me, and be blameless. Now, this is not to be read as if God is telling Abram to do two separate things here. God is not telling Abram, look, walk before me and be blameless. So, do your walking thing and then also try really hard over here as well. It's not how it's to be read. This is how it should be read. Walk before me and you will be blameless. If you go back just a, a into the first section of Genesis, uh, if you remember Noah, Noah was the one who was blameless in his generation. Why? Was it because Noah was such a good guy? No. The Bible says it's because he walked with God or walked before God. The God is saying to Abram, the way you walk blamelessly, the way you walk faithfully, is by walking before my faith. And remembering face, but remembering that I am with you. The New Testament puts it like this in First John two twenty eight through twenty nine, using the word abide. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. So, so what's even more significant is the fact that Abram did blow it back in chapter 16. Abram tried to take matters into his own hands. Abram essentially was not walking faithfully before God at that point in his life. Abram was in sin. And yet God still invites him into this abiding. And God invites you to do this as well. No matter how badly you've blown it, or, or think you've blown it, he calls you to walk before him, and he is the one that makes you blameless. 
Now, after all of this, Abram is then reminded, and I won't go into great detail about this because we've been reminded of the covenant almost every single week, but Abram is then reminded in verses 2 through 8 of this great promise, again, that he was given back in chapter 12. And the way in which he does this is, is in a way that, that will stay with Abraham or Abram the rest of his life. And that's through the changing of his name from Abram to Abraham. God says, I am so committed to the prom- this promise that I will change your name to the father of a multitude, a multitude of nations to remind you that this is my plan. So every time you hear your name spoken, you will hear my promise. You'll hear it. And your name is spoken a lot. Your name, like I said, meant a lot in this particular culture. So when someone would come, uh, was traveling by the, um, by Ab- would go through Abraham's land or whatever, um, it was custom that you would show hospitality to the stranger. And the first thing that they would do, you would do is exchange names. And the minute they heard the name Abraham, I'm sure the question that followed up to that was, that's wonderful that God has blessed you. How many sons do you have? I'm sure you have a large family. Your name says so. And Abraham, Abraham at this point can only say, well, I have one, but he's not really, I mean, he's not even my wife's, you know, it's, it's this whole thing. And he has to retell the story over and over again. I mean, this is why, Abraham, this is why he laughs. Because he knows he'll be a laughing stock in a lot of ways. But the really cool thing here is how God is, is over the top committed to Abraham's belief. So much so that he would name him the father of a multitude of nations. And it's because Abraham is not a pawn in God's little game. Nor are you but a beloved child of God. And he brings Abraham, this this broken scoundrel of a man who is constantly trying to depend on himself, into his story. That's incredible. And then in our second point, he not only reminds Abraham of his promise through his name, but he actually literally engraves the promise upon his body. Look at verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, I am not going to give you an explanation of circumcision. Um, I uh, was teaching this a while ago and had uh, a young lady in, in, the, in the mix not know what that meant and came up and asked me for an explanation. Um, and I just said, go home and talk to your dad. Um, so kids, go home and talk to your dad and mom. Because outside medical, a medical environment, 
In the 21st century, in our day and age, we do not talk about circumcision. It does not come up in conversation, really. Um, it's not really something that is, that is of, of high importance in our culture today beyond, beyond um, medicine. But in Jewish culture, in the Bible, in this particular time, it was of utmost importance. And the reason it was of utmost importance is because of what is said here in verses 9 through 14. Because verses 9 through 14 lay out the significance of this physical act. It was not merely a medical procedure, but a sign of the covenant that God Almighty has made with His people. And it served as a reminder of what God had done and was going to do for His people. So circumcision was a way in which God was extending the covenant promises beyond Abraham to Abraham's offspring and to everyone who was involved in Abraham's life. God God was here setting apart a people for Himself and circumcision literally marked them out as such. You knew who the people of God were because of this practice. So if you remember the story in Acts chapter 16 in the New Testament, where Paul uh, has Timothy, who, who is a Jew uh, because of his mom, he has him circumcised because he thought, hey, this is, this is the new covenant, this is, we don't have to do this. But Paul said, you know, we're going to be ministering amongst Jews. And the Jews are circumcised. And you're technically a Jew. So you need to be circumcised. Because Paul knew how important it was for their ministry amongst the Jews that they could see, if they wanted to, that he was marked out as one of them. Marked out as as one of God's people in this way. So circumcision, while we don't talk about it as much, is not an unimportant practice to us now. Because God always intended it to be an outward sign of an inward reality. Because God's desire was not just to engrave this on their flesh, but to engrave it upon their hearts. Paul covers this in Romans chapter 4 when he makes the case for justification by faith and not by works. Uh, Paul uses circumcision as the hinge of his argument. Speaking to to a mixed crowd here, this is how Paul uh, uses this argument. He says in in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was Circumcised. I can guarantee you, you will never hear the word circumcision as much as you are now, anytime else in your entire life. But Paul is, is, is expositing this idea to say that, it, that this promise to Abraham, this everlasting promise, is to those who have, been, who, have, who, have not been, who have not been circumcised and those who have been circumcised. 
So the point that Paul is seeking to make here, as a circumcised man, is to say that what's most important is not the act of circumcision itself, but the faith that this act is giving testimony to. That all along, even in Genesis chapter 17, circumcision was an outward sign of this inward reality, this inward reality of faith in God's promise of a Messiah. Genesis 3:16 when the promise of the Messiah was to come. So if you don't believe me that this was God's point, Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 still in the Old Testament tells us of how God assures his people that this is what he's going to do. This is the intention of what he's trying to get across with this at this physical act of circumcision. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So it moves in the Bible from the circumcision of flesh, a physical act that we see being uh, presented before us here in Genesis chapter 27, to the circumcision of the heart, a, a spiritual act. Because ultimately... Circumcision points Abraham and all of those who come after him forward to Jesus. Colossians 2, that Talia read for us earlier in the service, tells us that, that God has done this work of circumcising our hearts through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me just reread some of those verses. Paul again. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we have two ways in which we are reminded of this great reality in the church today. Not circumcision, but baptism, which Paul mentions here in Colossians, and the Lord's Supper. These two, two sacraments of the church are an outward sign of an inward reality. So baptism, as Paul notes, signifies your burial with Christ as you, as you go down into the water, that you have died to your old, old life of sin and rebellion. So you're buried with Christ in that because Christ was, was, uh, was crucified, died, and was buried for your sins. And then your resurrection with Christ as you come up out of the water, or as we say when we baptize here, raised to walk in the newness of life. And I might change that to raised to walk before God. And that's why we believe in believer's baptism. And then the Lord's Supper. Every week we have this amazing opportunity to be reminded of the covenant that Christ has sealed for us by His broken body and by His poured out blood. 
Essentially, what the supper is reminding us of is the promise to Abraham that has come true in Christ. Remember, it's an everlasting covenant. That means it never stops. It never goes away. So when Jesus says, and you'll hear it later in the words of the Lord's Supper, when he says, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood, he's not saying this is altogether different, that we're kind of moving on to, an, to another dispensation. That's not, what, that's not what Jesus means there. What Jesus is saying is that he is the one who is, who is, who is fulfilling the covenant. And that this everlasting covenant that Abraham, uh, that God made with Abraham continues on now in Christ. That's why it's new. Because Christ is the final sacrifice. So whether it was circumcision in the Old Testament or baptism in the Lord's Supper now, these outward signs of the inward reality are to be met by something else. You heard it in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then Paul says in Romans 4.12, And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the inward reality should birth a changed outward life. This is what Abraham was called to when, when God said in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. Which is exactly what we see him do in our final point. As Abraham, Abraham heard everything from God, he responds by obeying in faith. Look at verses 22 through 27. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among, among the men of Abraham's house and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So what we see happening here is not Abraham and Ishmael being good Jews and setting in place this kind of empty tradition that all Jews that will follow will now, uh, will now commit to and practice. Now, what we see Abraham doing is walking before God by demonstrating his faith through obedience to what God has called him to do. But God says in verse 10, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then he, then he goes back through and just repeats everything that he just told him. There is... Ishmael was circumcised, Abraham was circumcised, everybody in his house was circumcised. He just keeps repeating that over and over again, that the author does, so that we can see that Abraham obeyed God exactly as he was told. You'll see this again when he's asked to sacrifice this promised son. Abraham believes God and does exactly what he's told. 
even if that means losing his one and only son that has been promised to him. So this is Abraham, unbeknownst to him, uh, kind of bringing together the, the debate concerning faith and works. There's this you know, biblical theological debate that's, that's always happening between, oh, you know, Paul talks about faith, you know, faith alone, but then James talks about, oh, well, works are involved. Here's Abraham saying, nope, this is, this is how it all comes together right here. Faith alone in Christ alone, and then out, out of that saving work of God in Christ, you do your good works. Because God has saved you. God has, God has changed your life. And so it changes the way you live. So this is Abraham demonstrating his faith in God's promises by his works. This is Abraham showing us what it means to walk before God. And that is to walk in obedience to what he's calling each of us to do. Not circumcision but to be an outward sign of this inward reality that God, that, of what God has done for you through Christ. And in turn, we live a life of obedience toward God, not to earn His favor. We already have His favor. But to bring Him glory. So just in closing... <clears throat> Genesis 17, there's a lot packed in there. So just to give you a little bit of uh, biblical theology for those that are coming to the biblical theology class. Um, in any text that, that you're looking at in a church or preaching through or whatever, um, you could preach multiple sermons from a text. Um, there's, a lot, there's lots of truth here. There's, there's, there's several different directions we could have gone, uh, several different themes that we could have taken on and pointed out, the names being one of those and um, the, covenants that, the covenant that's being announced there again and again. Um, so, so looking at a text is, is, is kind of looking at it like, a, like you would look at a diamond. You could look at it from different angles and see different things from each angle. That's what, it, that's what it looks like to study God's Word. So I say that to preface what, that, that, that I want to close with a brief mention to, to the naming that takes place throughout this chapter. You have Abram to Abraham. So now I have to get used to saying that. You have Sarai to Sarah, and you have the naming of Isaac, which means laughter. And I say that to say because if you are a Christian, that means that God has changed your name as well. First and foremost, if you call yourself a Christian, you're calling what that word Christian means is little Christ. So you're named after your, your elder brother Jesus. But even more than that, you, your name has been changed from enemy of God to friend of God. Your, your name has been changed from, from slave to sin to free in Christ. Your, your, your name has been changed from, from orphan to son or daughter of God. And then if you're not a believer, you're still in those first, first names there, the enemy and slave and orphan. To become a Christian means to walk before this all, almighty God and be blameless. To have your name changed. And no matter how badly you've blown it, God Almighty will make you blameless in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you that you are you are a God who uh, who is not just um, a God who you know is this old grandfather sitting in his rocking chair in the sky and, and just kind of watching his his kids make chaos or his grandkids make chaos on this earth, but that you are a father that is deeply and intimately involved in our lives. And you have shown us this in, in the life of, of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 17. You have shown us that, that you don't stay silent forever, that you, that you enter into our life, that you declare yourself almighty, that you, that you, um, that you call us to, to, uh, to, to walk before you, that you make us blameless in Christ. And so God, I pray that we as a church would be a people who walk before you in this way. That we, in, 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 in obedience to the faith that you have given to us in Christ, would live a life before you that brings you glory and not ourselves. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.